Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey guys, thanks for having me on again. I really enjoy the show. So I wanted to come talk to you today about dye tracing. This is something I've done on and off over the years. I actually did my master's degree in it uh, back uh, quite a few years ago now at this point. And uh, I've done, I don't know, maybe five or six dye traces since then. Not necessarily an expert, but I do know generally what I'm doing, I, I hope. <laughs> so uh, just kind of an overall view, in Kentucky, about 35%-ish or so of the land surface is karst. And when we say... When we say karst, we're referring to the dissolution of limestone, ultimately, which can lead to caves, conduits, sinking streams, sinkholes, that type of geology. So uh, that type of geology can be very conducive to water moving very quickly underground. It's very different from other types of geology. So we need to know, in many instances, especially in urban areas, how fast it takes to get from point A to point B. An example of that might be a sinkhole, water traveling into a sinkhole, traveling underground for a couple of miles, and then resurfacing at a spring or river or you know somewhere else down the way where you don't really know where it comes out. You may or may not know where it comes out depending on if a dye trace has been done. So dye traces can be done to just simply identify the path of travel. They can also be done to identify how long it takes from get to point A to point B and, uh, and other reasons. But those are my main concerns, and those are the, the main reasons that I've done the dye traces I've been involved in. So two, two case studies that I want to talk about. The first one, when I was teaching at Eastern, I had two students, Laura Norris, uh, now Norris Dye, which is kind of an ironic last name, <laughs> uh, and uh, Cassie Simpson, uh, who did a really good dye trace study in McConnell Spring uh, State Park here in Lexington. And the second study is a study at Northern Kentucky University we did with some students of mine, Dan Martin and Constance Brown, in which we looked at the sinkhole on campus, at University of Kentucky's campus, and we tried to figure out where it came out and how long it took to get there, which is Mystery Spring. So the first one, the first one was done in 2015, and there's a huge sinkhole on the kind of west side of Lexington, I guess, and it's we call it the Campbell House sinkhole outside of the Campbell House and by the golf course out there. Huge, huge sinkhole. And uh, dye traces had already been done. You can look at the Kentucky Geological Survey and find the maps. But no studies had been done on time of travel, so we wanted to test how long it took to get from point A to point B. Point A being the Campbell House sinkhole and point B being uh, McConnell Spring. And ultimately, going back underground and discharging on the west side of Lexington into Preston Cave Spring. So, um, out of Preston Cave Spring. So we put dye in, in, the, in the sinkhole during a rainstorm, and we put these charcoal dye receptors in, uh, in McConnell Spring. And these charcoal dye receptors are very sensitive, and they can, 
uh, a dye can absorb onto them and you take them back to the laboratory and have them analyzed with a spectral photometer and it can be very sensitive down to a part per trillion or so. So, uh, that, so th those, that type of equipment is very helpful when it comes to dye tracing. So anyway, we put the dye in. It travels underground. We don't really know the exact path because we can't see underground. And uh, it comes out at McConnell Spring. It's about uh, one point, I believe 1.2 miles. So we wanted to know how long it took to get from point A to point B. Now you, there, you could guess, uh, you know, probably be fairly accurate, but we didn't really know. So long story short, we did the dye trace, we put the charcoal dye receptors in. It took somewhere in the ballpark of about six hours to travel that 1.2 miles. We also did dye traces on the west side of McConnell Spring, where it sinks again, and from there to Preston Cave Spring. It took about the same amount of time for dye to travel underground. Now, in these karst areas, as I mentioned earlier, water can travel very quickly underground because it's unrestricted. Think of water running through a big conduit or, or ultimately running through a cave. It may or may not be as fast as water running at the surface. Water running at the surface is generally unrestricted. Water in caves can sometimes be unrestricted. So water can move very quickly there compared to, say, water running through sand or water, water running through different types, percolating through different types of rocks, which can be very slow and can be filtered out. In the case of karst, it may not be filtered out at all and can move very quickly. So we wanted to test those times of travel. We wanted to publish that because nobody had done that before, at least nobody that, that we knew of. So we did so, and uh, Laura and Cassie published that and presented it at Kentucky Academy of Science, AIPG, American Institute of Professional Geologists. They actually won an, won an award for doing such a good job on it. So that was an interesting study, and uh, the second study that we did, this was just this past summer, with Dan and Constance is we we injected dye into a sinkhole outside of the University of Kentucky and we chased it with 150 gallons of water which is is good protocol when you don't have uh, a wet system which we didn't have there and we wanted to know where it came out and we wanted to know how long it took to get from point A to point B. Now Jim Kearns back in the 1980s had done a, a study but this was before the library was built it was before um, a lot of things had changed out on the west side of Lexington, so we wanted to make sure that connections still existed, there wasn't any interbasin spillover, those types of things. But more importantly, what I'm interested in, and and therefore what my students are have become interested in, is time of travel. Nobody's really looked at time of travel in a, in a, in in good detail, so we wanted to see how long it took for dye once you you know inject it chase it with water, you get it down into the into the system to get from that sinkhole outside the library on campus to Mystery Spring, which is out uh, between Manchester Music Hall and R.J. Corman Railroad. So we identified where the springs actually were again, or re-identified, I guess you could say, and we tested how long it took to get from point A to point B. Now there's a much longer story here that I won't go into because we had a probe, it kind of malfunctioned and all this other stuff. We weren't able to really 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 accurately quantify the time of travel but we were able to narrow it down to you know somewhere in the ballpark of 12 to 14 hours to get from point A to point B which is about again about the same amount of distance maybe 1.2 1.5 miles away I don't have it in front of me right now um, but it is important to know these things number one if you have a contaminant spill whether it's a truck some sort of sort of hazardous materials truck that has an accident or an underground spill, storage tank spill, or 
whatever you know maybe it's a non-point source spill you know whatever type of spill it is if you don't if you haven't done those types of studies ahead of time there's no way to really know until it's too late how long it takes to get from point A to point B for example in an urban area like downtown Lexington lots of stuff on the southwest side of, of Lexington ultimately ultimately makes its way up to that Campbell House sinkhole and it travels underground and it makes its way ultimately to McConnell Spring and then out Preston Cave Spring uh, into Wolf Run and then into Town Branch and the other basin uh, in the other study we did. So, you know, it's, it's, it's important if you have those types of spills to know how long it takes uh, and just, you know, to, to get an idea of how, you know, what the karst is like in this area. Not all karst is created equal. So some karst you might have lots of friction, lots of sediment, uh, lots of restrictions that uh, that prevents it from flowing very quickly underground. In the case of downtown Lexington, the studies we've looked at, uh, the travel times for traveling a mile or so underground are anywhere from, you know, six to twelve-ish hours. So we want to continue doing this work. We think it's really interesting. It's important. It's relatively easy. It's a good opportunity for students to get involved. So uh, just wanted to just give you an overview of the ditrace studies that we've done, ditrace studies in general, and the karst geology of the state of Kentucky. So I hope you enjoy, and feel free to ask me if you have any questions, and I continue to look forward every week to the great stories that are put up on this site. Thank you very much. You're currently listening to Bench Talk, the weekend science at WFMP 106.5 here in Louisville, Kentucky. Dave here. Well, if you live near Louisville, Kentucky, you've probably heard about the recent accident on the Ohio River. It was a towing vessel that was pushing 15 loaded coal barges up the Ohio River on Christmas Day 2018. It crashed into the Clark Memorial Bridge. This is probably the oldest bridge crossing the Ohio River in Louisville. It's the Second Street Bridge. Now don't ask me why the coal barges were going upstream on the Ohio River when you consider that one of the world's largest reserves of coal lies upstream already. We're talking about the eastern end of Kentucky, the Appalachians. I'm not being sarcastic here, but I really don't know why this coal barge was going upstream, but it was. Anyway, this group of 15 barges, all filled with coal, was going upstream. It hit the Clark Memorial Bridge, causing individual barges to break free from each other and float back downstream. Fortunately, no one was physically hurt in this accident. As of this airtime, which is January 3rd, 2019, they collected six of the barges, six of the barges sank, and another three are stuck in the river wedged against the wall where the Falls of Ohio are. It's estimated it's going to take at least a week to pull out these barges that are stuck, and in the meantime, they're sitting down there underneath the water in the Ohio River full of coal. Now, each of these barges holds more than 1,500 tons of coal, and it's believed that the majority of the coal is still actually in the barge. It's just sunken underwater. The barge didn't actually flip over when it sunk. Recovery crews are expected to try to remove or unload that underwater coal before they actually try to pull up the sunken barges. And that sort of makes sense since it's the coal that's making them heavy. 
but I don't know how successful they're actually going to be at removing all of that coal that's underwater. That's the question. Peter Goodman, the director of the Kentucky Division of Water, is quoted in the Louisville Courier-Journal as saying that he doesn't believe that this spill really represents a, quote, long-term threat to aquatic life or water quality, unquote, for the Ohio River. But my question is, is that true? Can a spill like this, and we're talking of at least 9,000 tons of raw coal that's now underwater in the Ohio River, is that going to cause significant water pollution? The experts seem to be saying, no, it's not going to be a big problem. Now, it appears that the Louisville water supply is not under threat of being contaminated because the inlet valve for Louisville's water is upstream of the accident. It's at the water tower, so that's not the immediate issue. But the question is, what about that water that's going to be carried downstream to other cities? And what about the aquatic life in the Ohio River that's downstream, or at the site of contamination for that matter? What about the plants and animals that live along the banks of the river who might even be eating the fish that are living around there? We're talking about the birds and the people that might be eating the fish. Does the coal spill threaten the health of the ecosystem? These are important questions. Since the transport of coal on river barges is on the rise, 7% of all the coal shipped in the United States in 2008 was by barge. Now it's 12%. So that's an increase of millions of tons of coal being shipped by barge in only 10 years. And if you have more barges with more coal, you've got an increased likelihood of future spills like this. I did read that the city of Evansville, which is using Ohio River water, and they're downstream of us, they're keeping a close eye on the situation. But apparently they aren't overly concerned since the Ohio River water level is really high right now and the river is moving so quickly. Now, coal does contain a lot of toxic chemicals. It contains heavy metals like arsenic, lead, and mercury. It also contains polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs. PAHs are known to cause cancer and can cause cardiovascular disease. But an article published in the Courier-Journal on December 29, 2018, however, states that, quote, several experts and officials do not believe the amount of coal spilled in the Ohio River this week is enough to cause detrimental effects to the river, unquote. One expert says that he is more worried about mercury dumping or sewage disposal into the river than, than he is worried about this coal. And I do have to remind you that the Ohio River has already been declared as the most polluted river in the United States. Apparently there was a smaller coal spill in a river in Pennsylvania in May of 2018, and state officials there determined that it did not really present a risk to water downstream. But on the other hand, my gut feeling is that sometimes government officials might have a tendency to underestimate environmental problems like this because maybe it's a way of assuaging people's fears. Governments typically don't like a voting public that is fearful or angry, you know? So what should we, the public, think of this situation? How concerned should we be about the environmental impact of some 9,000 tons of coal that's now submerged in the Ohio River? Even if most of that coal is removed, it will have been down there for at least a week. And what about the coal that's not removed? They can't possibly get all of it. And it ends up just falling to the bottom of the river and sits there forever. What about that coal? 
Now, I'm certainly not an expert on coal spills, so I just can't tell you off the top of my head, but I did do what I thought was a pretty thorough search of the scientific literature, but I found that there really wasn't a lot of research about this question. There's a lot of papers about oil spills, of course, and there's quite a bit about what happens when coal ash, which is what you get when you burn coal, when that gets dumped into the waterways, but not so much on the spills of raw coal into fresh water. Now, there's quite a bit of research on what happens when there's coal dumped into marine water, but what about coal that gets dumped into fresh water? I found a dissertation written in 2014 by a doctoral candidate by the name of Jairo Orobo Sanchez, and he was studying at the World Maritime University in Sweden, which is a university that is actually founded by the United Nations. And Dr. Sanchez's Ph.D. dissertation is called Coal as a Marine Pollutant. I found this pretty informative, and it is freely available on the web. I'll post it on our Facebook page as soon as I can. Dr. Sanchez basically says that the effect of coal on marine life potentially covers three basic areas. Coal spills can, one, increase the turbidity of the water because the small coal particles can get suspended in the water. Two, it can change the chemistry of the water. And three, it can just smother out whatever is living on the bottom of the ocean when the coal gets dumped there. So that first type of environmental damage, turbidity changes when the particles get suspended in the water. That could clog the gills of various aquatic animals. It could reduce the infiltration of light into the water. That might reduce primary productivity of algae. It might reduce photosynthesis. And all this turbidity could hurt animal feeding or animal mating or animal movement. Now, I don't know how big of an issue turbidity is going to be in the Ohio River because, as you probably already know, the Ohio River is quite filthy already. There's a large amount of suspended soil in the Ohio River due to erosion. That's why it looks like chocolate milk instead of a clear blue color. I doubt that coal is going to make this aspect much worse than it already is. I had a friend tell me recently that her great-grandfather remembers walking on the Ohio River when it was frozen over in the winter, and he was able to see the bottom of the river. It was so clear. Now, because of the runoff of soil particles from farms and construction zones, the river looks like chocolate milk. It's all brown. And so, to me, it seems like adding a few extra coal particles might not really make a difference. It's already so bad. The second way that Dr. Sanchez says coal can hurt the water is by chemical pollution. Coal has substantial amounts of sulfur in it, which means that it can acidify the water it's placed in. It also contains hundreds of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs. Sanchez includes a quote from another research paper in his dissertation. This paper was published in 2014. Quote, PAH contamination is a major hazard that is a concern for aquatic life in marine sediments, particularly in areas close to anthropogenic sources. Many PAHs are at the same time persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic for humans and aquatic organisms, unquote. Then there's several more pages of Dr. Sanchez's dissertation that reports on different experiments performed on various marine animals that were exposed to underwater coal and what the effect the coal had on them. One paper concluded that the level of PAHs in coal were relatively low and they weren't really at risk of leaching into the water very much. 
Sanchez also reviews the literature on heavy metals in coal, you know, metals like mercury and lead. Now, the good news is that it appears that most of these toxic metals are chelated inside the coal itself. These heavy metals are bound to other organic molecules in the coal that seem to prevent it from getting released into the water. In fact, it appears that some minerals in the seawater actually go into the coal because they get chelated by the coal itself. I found one interesting research article about the sinking of the Titanic. As you know, the Titanic was this huge luxury liner that sank in the northern Atlantic Ocean in 1912, ended up killing 1,500 people. They eventually found the wreckage of the Titanic in 1985, and they started bringing up artifacts from the bottom of the ocean. Well, the Titanic was carrying 4,000 tons of coal when it sank, and some researchers back in 2003, they brought some of that coal back up for analysis. Actually, what they really wanted to know in the beginning was, what was the source of the coal on the Titanic? There had been a big labor strike in the British coal mines at that time, and so they wanted to know, was it British coal or was it American coal? And they eventually found out that it was British. But to make that determination, they of course had to compare the chemical composition of the Titanic's coal with modern day coal. And what they discovered is that in spite of this coal sitting at the bottom of the ocean, it was 12,000 feet underwater for 80 years, it really wasn't all that different from modern day coal. In fact, they found that there were a couple chemical elements that seemed to have actually been absorbed from the ocean by the coal. Those two elements were bromine and iodine. The coal seemed to absorb some bromine and iodine from the ocean water. Now, if you were paying attention there about that story about the Titanic, you might have heard me say that the Titanic went down with 4,000 tons of coal, whereas we here in Louisville are seeing 9,000 tons of coal dumped in the Ohio River. So we're seeing a dumping of more than twice the amount of coal that got dumped in the Atlantic Ocean with the sinking of the Titanic. That's a very dramatic way to show you how much coal we are still consuming here in the United States. Now, this literature review I'm reviewing for you, it's not to say that there's no leaching of minerals from coal into the surrounding water, because there is. There was one paper published in 2012 that reported trace amounts of cadmium, lead, and five other chemical elements that actually did leach into the seawater. But it was only about 1% or less of the amount in the coal that actually got leached out. Another researcher in 2012 wrote, quote, the ecological resilience and the water quality are not jeopardized because of leached traced elements in the seawater. Any leaching of these elements is likely to dissolve and disperse rapidly in an open water accident." Unquote. So after he reviewed the research literature, Dr. Sanchez in his dissertation concluded that the likelihood of chemical pollution of the ocean by coal is relatively low. Now, a third source of environmental problems coming from coal dumping in the water is the smothering effect of the coal itself on the living organisms that live at the bottom of the water. All of that dumped coal is burying whatever was living at that site. It's the benthic community that you're talking about. It could get displaced, and Sanchez recognizes this as a, as a significant problem. So Dr. Sanchez is basically showing in his dissertation that coal is not as big of a pollutant as you might think it is. But there are some important differences between the scenarios that Sanchez was studying 
and what is happening in our situation here on the Ohio River. First of all, the Ohio River is fresh water, whereas Dr. Sanchez was studying ocean water, which is very high in salts, very high in carbonates. I really wasn't able to find papers on what happens to coal that gets dumped in freshwater lakes or rivers. Maybe they're out there, I just wasn't able to find them. Most of the papers were about seawater. Secondly, the volume of water in the ocean is much greater than in a river, so if something does get leached out of coal dropped in the bottom of the ocean, it's going to get a lot more diluted in the ocean than it is going to be in the Ohio River. But then on the other hand, a river has flow, which means water is rushing over that coal deposit, and this could dilute or spread out the pollutants that are being released from it. And I hate to say it, but that's one way that pollution is dealt with. The solution to pollution is dilution. Thirdly, the depth of water in a river is a whole lot less than in the ocean, so there's probably more environmental interaction between the top of a water column and the bottom of the water column in a river than you see in the deep ocean. So I imagine that there's a, I don't know, a shorter food chain between the bottom dwellers and the birds in the Ohio River than what you'd see in the deep ocean. And then finally, the type of aquatic organisms in the Ohio River are totally different than what you'd find in marine environments. We're talking about the kind of fish, mollusks, invertebrates, reptiles, amphibians, the algae, the higher plants. They're totally different here than what you'll find in the ocean. The sensitivity of these freshwater species might be different than for marine organisms. And so that needs to be taken into account also. So for me, the takeaway message was that as pollutants go, coal isn't as bad as it might sound. There is research backing up the claim of these government officials who are saying that a coal spill is not as bad as an oil spill or a spill of coal ash. Coal is just not the same kind of pollutant as some of these other things. But I'm certainly not saying that we should not be concerned, because we should be. This is a serious thing. The barge company is responsible for trying to remove this coal from the Ohio River, but it won't be possible to get all of it, I bet. So the spill is of concern. The bottom of the river is inevitably going to have some coal deposited there, and that is definitely going to disturb any life that's down there. The Falls of Ohio sits right next to the site of the accident, so the river will be more shallow there. And I imagine that this means that there's a faster rate of water flow than in other parts of the river. So this means millions of gallons of river water will be flowing over this spilt coal deposit for decades to come. Not to even mention the fact that it's doing that now, since they haven't even removed the coal yet. I'm told that the NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, it's a federal agency, they're going to have to visit this dump site and perform an NRDA, that's a Natural Resource Damage Assessment. So they're going to study the spill. They'll measure the impact of this spill on the environment and presumably write up some sort of a report. I don't know how long this damage assessment will take, but I would love to read their final report. Keep an eye on this radio show or ear, and I'll let you know what I find out. My hope is that officials from federal, state, and city environmental agencies will inform us, the public, about what they know and what they learn about this situation. Just because the coal is hidden from our view, this is not the time to keep us in the dark. Thank you. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. 
If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.